The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. All right, brothers. We made it to chapter 3. This is good news. All right, so my goal here is to get to verse 10. That's, where, that's our target. So you can uh, be calculating how close am I to bed, how close am I to bed. Um, pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I am asking for renewed strength that only you can give. We're asking for clarity of thought even when there is so much already up there and our bodies are weary. We're asking for help because what you have to tell us now is so important. This is food for our soul and hope in a very challenging, broken world. So I ask that you would uh, help us, help us receive, help us build the proper bridge from the old into the new, help us celebrate you. In Christ alone I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, in past sessions, that is past times that I've been here, um, I have unpacked the, have I done this? Maybe I even haven't even done it. But anyway, up on the screen is a picture of what I think the whole Bible is about. Actually, I've been asked, what do you do? And I say, I teach about Jesus from the Old Testament. Jesus from the Old Testament, unpack that a little more. And sometimes I'll draw this diagram. It takes less than 30 seconds and it holds together, I think, all of of the Bible. When I talk about the Bible, I see it as God's kingdom through covenant for His glory in Christ. That's my summary statement of what I think the whole Bible is about. It's about God's kingdom. It comes to us through the form of of covenant. We have an old covenant and new covenant, or what we call them now is the Old Testament, New Testament. That's the means by which God's kingdom is accomplished through relationship. That's what a covenant is. And it's always everything from start to finish. Everything God does is for His glory. That's the ultimate focus. So we have a frame, God's kingdom. The form is through covenant. The focus is for His glory. And the fulcrum to which everything points and from which all fulfillment comes is Jesus Christ, the Savior, Sovereign, and Satisfier of the world. Now there's an Old Covenant and a New Covenant. The Old Covenant has the law, the prophets, and the writings. This is the form of Jesus' Bible. We read about it in Luke 24. He told them everything about Himself from the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Luke 24, 44. The New Covenant is made up of the Gospels, Acts, Paul's letters, the general epistles beginning with Hebrews and going to Jude, and then the book of Revelation. Now as we look at this wheel, you see lighter colors up top, brighter colors on the bottom. The top is foundation, the bottom is fulfillment. Old covenant, new covenant. Maybe if I was thinking about it that way, I should have put the old on the bottom and the new on the top. But... um, Now with this, there's different sections, and 
Zephaniah is found in the prophets, which is the middle section above. So I'm going to go to a different diagram now. This is the way our Bible is set up. The Old Covenant, Law, Prophets, Writings, isn't all even. There's a story that's being told, and that story is found in the narrative parts. Jesus' Bible had the same books as our Old Testament, but it was in a different order. And it was framed by the story. And so you have Genesis through Kings, full stop. Genesis through Deuteronomy tells the first part of the story when the law is established. Sorry, the Old Covenant is established. At Mount Sinai, it's all made right there. Who Israel is supposed to be is defined. Then you move into the history of the covenant, which is unpacked in the former prophets. We find out what happened, and it's a sour history, a sad history. Then, right after the end of Kings, so the prophets, the former prophets, wherein the old covenant is enforced, we get Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. Ruth isn't part of that group in Jesus' Bible. Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, and they're all pretty south history books. Then after you find out what happened, you learn why it happened, and that's where the prophets come in, the people that we normally think of as prophets. But you have the prophetic history, and then the prophetic preachers. And that's where you get Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and the twelve guys. And they're only called minor because they've got smaller books. But these are now out of the narrative, the storyline, and we've entered into the world of the commentary. And after you hear the commentary on the negative history, you move into more commentary. It starts with Ruth, and it takes us all the way to Chronicles, which is the last book of the Old Testament. Now, the New Testament is patterned exactly the same way. We've got narrative in the Gospels where the New Covenant is established, the narrative in the book of Acts, but the story has changed a lot. When you parallel it to Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, it's a positive history. Why? Because the Spirit is at work. And in the Old Covenant, it was all about death. Then you get more commentary. It's Paul's letters. Then you get more commentary. It's Hebrews through Jude. And then you get Revelation, the end of the story. So the same pattern in the old in Jesus' Bible, when you put Jesus' Bible up against the English Bible, the Structure is exactly the same. And it's in the last portion that, and and this is one of the beauties of the structure of Jesus' Bible, you don't end your Old Testament on the dark note of the prophets. It's pushing you through the dark history, Joshua. That's okay, but they didn't quite do everything right. Judges, ah, that's really bad. Samuel, up and down, up and down. Kings, everything goes south. And that's where the story ends until you get, notice narrative at the far end, the latter writings, Kings ends with Israel in exile, the story picks up again in the book of Daniel. And they're in exile, but now it's a story of hope. So I just want to identify something for you. The storyline in the writings... So you're going to read through Zephaniah, and you're getting some picture of hope, but it's been, a, it's been a pretty heavy book. 
And then you move to Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, and all of a sudden the Messiah is going to come on the scene in full force in their prophetic visions. But Israel, according to the story, they left off there in exile. They're in darkness, separated from God. And then what we get, though, is that Ruth comes in. So the story ended with Israel in exile. Where does Ruth start? With a woman in exile, in Moab, separated from God, husbandless, sonless. God gives her a daughter and they come back and find respite in the house of bread, Bethlehem. And it's a redeemer from Bethlehem who provides the means to give this new family hope. And what Boaz is to Ruth is what David is to the nation of Israel. But not the David that Ruth initially was about. The very last word of the whole book of Ruth is David. Because Ruth and Boaz, Boaz was the son of whom? Anybody know? Rahab the harlot from Jericho. So it goes, Rahab gives birth to Boaz, who marries Ruth, who give birth to Obed, who give birth to Jesse, who give birth to David. And David is the ultimate king of Israel who himself fails, and so your eyes move forward. But when Ruth shows up in the Old Testament, in Jesus' Bible, it doesn't come after Judges. Can you show us how you have a list printed out of the books? I do. So here is... Here's the initial list. It goes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's just like what we know of. But then it goes Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. Those are all the storybooks. And Chronicles doesn't follow Kings in Jesus' Bible. Chronicles is actually a very different book. But I think we miss it if we just read it in our Bible reading plan after Kings. We're like, didn't I just read this? Saul only gets five verses in Chronicles. The Bathsheba episode is never mentioned in Chronicles. Manasseh's sin is never mentioned in Chronicles. In fact, all the northern kings and all of their wickedness and all that took place at the high place of Dan and the high place of Bethel and Jeroboam's mess-ups, they are minimized, minimized in order to magnify the hope of the Davidic covenant. And it comes right at the end of the Bible. So you move in from Joshua through Kings. All of those narrative books are in exact chronological order. Full stop commentary. And all the commentary books are created not on the basis of chronology, which came first, but on the basis of size. Jeremiah is the biggest, so he gets first place. Then Ezekiel, then Isaiah. Isaiah was first among all of them, but he comes after Ezekiel. And then the 12 minor prophets. Put them all together and they're still shorter than Isaiah. Then you come to the next group. And I want to read this to us. Because this is where Zephaniah is headed. It's wanting to move us into, ultimately, the hope. The last part of the Old Testament is not a downer. It is the most upbeat part of all of the Old Testament if you read it in Jesus' Bible's ordering. Every book is hopeful. None of the books are downtrodden and discouraging. Ruth is the only one that isn't listed by size, and it's because it's just a prelude. 
It's just the introduction to get us into the Psalms. And the whole focus of Ruth is not on Boaz, it's not on Ruth, it's on the hope of David. Just as David's ancestors were pulled out of exile, believe me, the promise still stands and his descendants can come out of exile too when the Redeemer from Bethlehem shows up again. So Ruth is a prelude affirming the kingdom hope of Yahweh's redeeming grace through the line of David. Then the Psalms comes in. It's hope for those delighting in and submitting to God's kingship through His Word and His Messiah. The book of Job, it's hope for those who fear God for who He is and not for what He gives or takes away. Proverbs, hope for those acting wisely, who fear God, turn from evil, and live in light of the future. Ecclesiastes, it's, there's hope. There still is hope in the midst of all this darkness. We're longing for the day when the Son of Man, when the King David would rise. They're living in this weird world of under the curse, in the darkness, in the exile, before the restoration hits. This is their songbook, because Ezra and Nehemiah didn't ultimately bring what they had thought would come. Ecclesiastes, hope for those fearing and following God in pleasure and pain despite life's enigmas. Song of Songs, hope for those who celebrate human sexuality in the context of marriage. Take it out of that context, you don't have hope. But if you're living in the midst of darkness, one of the tools that you have to nurture hope in the ultimate day when the groom will come to meet his bride is to celebrate sexuality in the context of marriage rightly. And every time you engage with your wife, you can be reminded of the ultimate commitment that God has for His people. It's how that book, I think, is intended to work. Lamentations, hope for those remaining confident in God's reign and faithfulness to His own. And you get to Lamentations, and what has it done? Lamentations moves us back into the exile. It takes us right to Jerusalem's fall, which is where the book of Kings ended. And Lamentations then... What we have is Lamentations is the end of the commentary. The first book in the commentary was Jeremiah. So the whole book of commentaries, commentary books are all framed by Jeremiah. And then the bridge through Lamentations gets us back into the exile. That's what we're thinking of. The separation from God. Does God reign? That's how Lamentations ends with that big question mark. Is God really reigning? Is He really for us? And Daniel starts up the story again, right where kings left off. The promise of God's universal kingdom is now reiterated. The preservation of God's kingdom people is realized in the book of Esther. The restoration of God's kingdom people and land is foreshadowed in Ezra and Nehemiah. But you read that book and you're like, well, they kind of got it, but the whole bunch of returnees are all still filled with sin. They haven't changed. Their hearts haven't been altered. And so even though there's initial restoration, there's also sustained exile. What Ezra and Nehemiah brought was not fully all that they had hoped for. And then Chronicles comes at the end and takes us all the way back. First word of Chronicles, Adam. It starts us at the beginning of the story to remind this people who are living separated from God in a period of darkness that indeed... They're still part of the plan. If they will but seek the Lord and wait upon the Lord, they are still part of the plan that started back with Adam. And through Adam, and then all the genealogies, while it covers a lot of them, the main focus is on the line of David and the priests. And those are the two pictures of the Messiah, the priest and the king. And Chronicles is there to heighten hope in the ultimate king when he would arrive. And you turn the page after Chronicles... 
Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Fourteen generations to get us to Abraham. Fourteen generations to get us to David. Sorry, fourteen generations to get us to David. Fourteen generations to get us to the exile. Fourteen generations to get us to Jesus. And then you've got the wise guys from the north looking for the king of the Jews. But Zephaniah's darkness is not, they're not going to leave Israel here. They're moving toward restoration, and that was my only point. We now come to chapter 3, the second of the woes. So you'll remember that chapter 2 made this call to repentance. Gather together and seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, because the Philistines are going to get judged. Well, let me tell you what I mean. I mean that God's judgment is going to fall on all the nations, north, sorry, west, east, south, and north of you. So don't you think that you're going to get away from this judgment? The second woe starts in chapter 3, and it brings that center of the compass into focus. Woe to her, it says, who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. Now just in chapter 2, verse 15, it said, Assyria was the exultant city. And it uses the exact same construction, as if it's wanting us to parallel Jerusalem with Assyria. You've got a proud city, and you've got an oppressing city. And the nature of their oppression is going to be unpacked, but, but oppression is the opposite of pure religion. Think about James. What is pure religion? It's caring for the broken, not making people broken. Isaiah 42, verse 3, the messianic servant, this servant, Isaiah's vision of the Messiah the servant of the Lord, a bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not blow out. That's so hopeful for people who are hurting. And it was exactly the opposite of where Judah was. They were not picturing for the world the heart of God. They were, it says, not only oppressive, rebellious and defiled. So, the very people who are supposed to be the holy people of God. Remember in Exodus 19 when it said, If you will be to me, sorry, if you will keep my covenant, heed my voice, be to me a treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, you'll be two things, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But rather than being holy, they've become polluted. How? What was the nature of their covenant rebellion? How had they turned from God? We've already gotten a lot of glimpses, but it unpacks it for us in verse 2. And where it goes is so devastating, but also so very basic. Number one, they stopped listening. NIV has obey, and that's often how they render, and even the ESV often renders listening. They failed to listen to the voice of God. And by that, they mean they didn't hear in a way that changed their lives. But listening is at the core of where... It's, it's step one in learning to have a relationship with the Lord. Faith comes by hearing. Did you receive the Spirit by works of law or by 
hearing with faith. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one, and you shall love him with all your heart and soul and substance. But you can't have real love without hearing. Hearing is where it all begins, and they stopped right there. There's a spiritual disability. Their ears are covered up. They're not listening to God. La, 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 I'm not hearing you, I'm not hearing you. Whatever they're doing, they're probably listening a lot to one another, but they're not hearing Him. They're accepting no correction. Turn with me in your Bibles quickly back to Leviticus 26. You know that book that you really run through on your Bible reading plan? Leviticus 26, look at verse 14 with me. As we read this, these are the curses of the covenant, and what I want you to do is listen for why God gives curses. Why does He correct or discipline His people? He tells them right off the bat, before they ever even um, fail, when they wanted to go in and they saw the giants, and then he gives them 40 years in the wilderness. Before they ever get there, he had already said this. Listen to what he says. If you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all that I command, but you break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I'll visit you with panic and wasting disease and fever and consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I'll set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you. None of that is very good. But then notice what it says in verse 18. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I'll discipline you again. Notice it's discipline. I'll discipline you again sevenfold for your sins, and I'll break the pride of your power, and I'll make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. No rain, no crop growth. Your strength shall be spent in vain. As tough as you work that land, nothing will be produced. For your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Verse 21, Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, then I'll continue striking you sevenfold for your sins, and I'll let loose the wild beasts against you. Verse 23, And if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I'll also walk contrary to you. Verse 27, I'll pour out more stuff, but if in spite of this you will not listen to me. So you tell me, what was the purpose of God's curses as He revealed them? Pardon? Bring them back. That's right. For everyone who has a heart to learn, curses are blessing in disguise. So how does the book of Hebrews talk about the disciplining hand of God upon His children? Hebrews chapter 12. Here's what it says. Your fathers disciplined your uh, our fathers disciplined us for a short time, verse 10, as it seemed best to them, but God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it's yield, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Now we go back to Zephaniah. They accept no correction. 
What I think that means is that they've been spanked and they remained hard-hearted. They didn't grow and learn from the disciplining hand of their father. And therefore, these curses will ultimately climax in punitive death. He'll punish them. The curses will become punishment rather than discipline. When you're hard-hearted, it drives you further away. She does not trust in the Lord. Is there anything more basic than this? She does not draw near to her God. Now, drawing near, I just want to draw attention. This may very well, I think, be a signal, if we can read it, to what God wanted to do through all the Levitical sacrifices. The atonement. In Leviticus chapter 10, verse 3, you don't have to turn there, you can if you'd want. Leviticus 10, verse 3, this is what we learn. Among those who are near me, I will be shown holy. And who are those who are near him? Those who have come to him through the substitute sacrifice. In Leviticus 10, it tells us explicitly, and it uses the verb, draw near, draw near, draw near, over and over again. And the way that they draw near is first by bringing their sacrifice. Then the priest representing them draws near to God and offers the sacrifice. And those who come before God, having drawn near through, the, through faith in the substitute that God has provided, they're atoned for. And all of a sudden their lives will begin slowly to display the holiness of God. So God's fires in Leviticus 10 come out and consume the sacrifice. And at the same time, they ignite new holy passion in our soul. God's passion for His own holiness, His zeal against sin, consumes the sacrifice and sparks off of that sacrifice come into our lives. And all of a sudden, the holiness of God begins to be displayed. His passion for His own holiness, His zeal against sin, becomes our passion and our zeal. When we approach Him, draw near to Him through the precious blood of the sacrifice. And that's exactly the same language that Paul uses in the New Testament. Drawing near is what is done, Ephesians 2.13, Hebrews 7.19. Both of them, we draw near to God through Jesus' blood and righteousness. Ephesians 2.13, Hebrews 7.19. So what is Israel doing? They're, if I'm on to it, and this is dealing another echo of the sacrifice that we saw in Zephaniah 1 verse 7, the sacrifice is going to either come down on the sinner or on the substitute. Will you draw near to God? You're refusing to draw near to me through my provision. And therefore, this is the only means you can have a relationship with me. As sinners, this is the only means. And when you reject it, You're choosing death. There's no other option. That's where Israel was. Zephaniah 3. They didn't trust the Lord. That's the most basic element of our lives. It's directly related to the idea of faith. And we've seen that over and over again. So, if this is where they're at, their basic makeup, he now expands it in verses 3 and 4. This is what we learn. Her officials within her are roaring lions, her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. So remember back in chapter 1, 
verse 9, verses 8 and 9, we learned about the officials and the king's sons who were engaging in deceit and fraud. Now we're unpacking more what's going on among the, the religious leaders and the civil leaders. They're very loud in threats. I think that's what probably the roaring lion has an idea. And then they're ravenous. They're like evening wolves that leave nothing until the, uh, nothing to the morning. So that these likenings, it's like this, helps us put a picture into the nature of their wickedness. Loud and boisterous and and uh, ravenous. Then it says her prophets are fickle. They've got no foundation. They're treacherous men. Most likely meaning they're willing to prophesy for a bribe. Prophecy in biblical times was a tough, a tough scenario if you were a Yahweh prophet because nobody wanted to hear what you had to say. It's not fun to be confronted by sin. And pastors, so the two roles of the prophet in the Old Testament were they were intercessors, mediate, taking the people to God, and then they were mouthpieces, taking, the, taking God's words to the people. That is, they were prayers and they were preachers. And I don't think it's by chance that we come to the New Testament Remember that passage when the deacons are set apart and the apostles say, we can't wait tables because we've been called to two things. The Word of God and prayer. And when we get to Philippians chapter 1, the apostles have now been set aside because there's only a small group of them. And they've given rise to the elders. It's now the elders and the deacons, not the apostles and the deacons. And I think the elders now bear the role and the elders would be the pastors. In some churches, they're called the deacons, but that's another matter. But the biblical overseers who are guardians of God's book and bearing the responsibility to intercede on behalf of the people, and these prophets here were willing to tickle ears rather than preach the word. One of the means of grace that God has given us to keep us from being ear ticklers is to start at the beginning of the book and preach all the way through it. Because if we just hop around, it's very easy to go to the text that are most familiar or the most comfortable. But if we just start in the beginning of a book and say, we're going to see what God has to say for us, then all of a sudden, ooh, we're faced with talking about money. Ooh, we're faced with talking about sin. Oh, we're faced with having to talk about the relationship of men and women. We're faced with having to talk about the end times, and that's really blurry, but it's in here, and I want to figure it out. But if we just take a step back and say, I'll just go to those texts that I'm most familiar with, we'll have a tendency to not feed our people the whole counsel of God. These prophets were fickle. They heard what people wanted, and what they didn't want was tell me about my sin or tell me how to spend my money. And so people were using it 
in oppressive ways to build themselves up, and the prophets were doing nothing. Similarly with the priests. The priests profane what is holy. God was holy. His people were holy. His temple was holy. And they were taking it all very lightly. They do violence to the law. Now look up at verse 3. It says, the officials were within her. Though her is the oppressing city, Jerusalem. But now what else is within her? Yahweh. In the very place of oppression and deceit and rebellion, God was still there. And when Zephaniah was preaching, God was still there. Amazing mercy. Well, what was this God like? Number one, He was righteous. He does no injustice. He's always right. He's never wrong. He's always working for right order. Are you with Him or against Him? Every morning he shows forth justice. Now we all remember Lamentations chapter 3. Mercy, mercy new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. But our people could also learn to recognize that every morning God's going to work justice. Is he going to work justice on your sin this morning? Or is he going to continue to endure in patience? Each dawn he does not fail but the unjust knows no shame. Now, if I recall rightly, no, I'm going to continue. Chapter 3, verse 6. Israel, I've cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I've laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant, Why did I do all this? Why did I destroy your enemies? Or at least my enemies. I said, surely you will fear me. You'll accept correction. When you saw what I was doing to those that you were following, I thought it would wake you up. Then your dwelling would not have been cut off. There's that word cut off again. According to all that I had appointed against you, the curses... But all the more, they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Let me draw attention to a few things here. Number one, part of Yahweh's intention in bringing about destruction on the enemies, the earthly kingdoms of the world, is to motivate His people out of sin. So let's look at a couple of texts. Number one, Malachi 1 verse 5. Malachi Two books after Zephaniah. Malachi 1 verse 5. We'll begin in verse 4. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, oh, they may rebuild, but know this, I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, Judah, And you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. Malachi 1, verse 5. So when God, this is is the purpose of God's bringing down Edom. That as He brings down the enemy, Israel would heighten 
their awareness of how big God is, how worthy of praise He is. Every nation that falls is to be a picture of the bigness of God who alone raises nations and puts them down. But there's more. And that's Isaiah 20, verse 6. Isaiah 20, verse 6. Verse 5, we'll begin at. They shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush, their hope, and of Egypt, their boast. So the people of God have been putting their hope in Cush and in Egypt. But God will bring down those nations. And, the, and it says, And the inhabitants of this coastland will say in that day, Behold, this is what has happened to those in whom we hoped, and to whom we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we, how shall we escape? So, one question we may ask sometimes when we're reading Israel's Bible Why does it include all these oracles against foreign nations? Egypt is going to be brought down. Babylon is going to be brought down. Assyria is going to be brought down. Cush is going to be brought down. Because those are all the people that Israel was running to for help and safety. And God is saying, it's worthless. I mean, part of when Rocky was here last time, whenever that was, and we went through how to care for the broken. And the key example of the three days was caring for ex-convicts. Part of, part of what, uh, part of the education for them is saying, look where your lifestyle got you. Do you want to come back here? It's empty. It's pointless. Run from it. The guilt that people feel over their sin. How bitterness can eat up a soul. How lust destroys healthy marriages. Just look around and see it. It ends in emptiness and hopelessness. Do you have eyes to learn from God's correction of others even before He corrects you? Will you receive it as mercy and wake up out of your sin and say, I don't want it anymore. God, help me. Move me to humility. Move me to listening, to trusting, to drawing near. Will you go there or will you continue obstinate, unwilling to listen, hard-hearted and deaf, deaf, deaf? Israel, Judah, in the mind of Zephaniah, the majority remained deaf. And then it says at the end of verse 7, they were all the more eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Now, I'm not certain, but I think very possibly the use of the language of corruption here is very intentional. Because we've already used in in Zephaniah 1 verses 3 and 4, already, or 2 and 3, they've used the imagery of the flood. I don't fully have my hands around why he's going back to these early chapters yet of the Bible, but he has that vision in mind. And in Genesis chapter 6, verse 11, this is what we read. Now the earth was corrupt 
in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence. And God saw that the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will, you wouldn't see this in the ESV, I will make them corrupt, destroy. I will make them corrupt with the earth. So I wonder if this is another echo of what life was like back there in the days before the flood judgment. Corruption. Right there, when we come to verse 7, we've arrived at the end of the development of why Israel's supposed to gather and seek the Lord. Seek the Lord because I'm going to judge Philistia. Well, what I mean is, woe to the nations that I'm going to destroy, and woe to Jerusalem that I'm going to destroy. The main reason here that Judah is called to seek the Lord is because judgment is a reality. And then we read, therefore, in verse 8, because judgment is a reality, therefore, not only seek the Lord, wait for Him. Now, different translations have approached verse 8 in different ways. I want to argue for you why I think this is a positive verse and not a negative one. If I was to read verse 7 and only verse 7 like this, Tell me what you would hear. Oh, I'm displaying penguins. And... All right. They were really good, weren't they? Yes. Okay. So listen, listen to me read it this way. Jerusalem was all the more eager to corrupt... To, to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations and to assemble kingdoms to pour out upon them my indignation. If you read it like that, it sounds like you just wait because I'm coming to judge you. You with me? Can you see that reading? I don't think that's the right reading, though. Because if you type in this word wait, no place in all the rest of the Bible is it ever used in a negative way. Like wait, the judgment is right around the corner. You just wait, kid. I'm going to come back home and when I get there, you're in trouble. Yeah, that's right. You, yeah, that's right. My mom never heard that. This is not, I don't think, that kind of waiting. This, therefore, is not building directly off of verse 7. This, therefore, I think, is building off of the entire context that started in 2.5 all the way to 3.7. Because judgment is real, seek the Lord. Because judgment is real, wait for the Lord. So let me just give some examples here of this kind of waiting. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 17. I'm going to take them all from Isaiah. Isaiah 8.17. This is wait. I'm going to wait for the Lord in a positive way until the judgment passes. 
Isaiah 8, 17. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding His face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in Him. Judgment hasn't come yet. It seems like He's distant from Jacob. But I'm not going to give up. I'm going to keep waiting. Or how about Isaiah 64, verse 4. Here is not waiting for judgment to pass, but actually longing and waiting for restoration when you're in the midst of darkness. Isaiah 64, 4. From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for Him. Because judgment is real, Israel. Therefore, wait for me. Be patient in your pursuit of me. Have tireless trust in me. Don't just repent. Wait, because it's going to get better. If you can be among those who seek the Lord and who wait upon the Lord, deliverance will come. And with it, Joy. Last verse, Isaiah 30, 18. Here's a beautiful verse. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore He exalts Himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for Him. I think that's the kind of waiting we're talking about. Nowhere else is this waiting ever Judgment is coming for you. But rather, okay, you're in the season. Judgment is coming. But you just wait. Wait in hope. Persevere. And, oh, we are a people who need to hear that. When cancer strikes. When twin towers fall. When sons rebel. When there's car accidents and cancer. We need to hear Wait for the Lord. It's going to be worth it. Don't give in. Don't give up. He is real and He's still on the throne. And none of this evil that you're seeing is catching Him off guard. He is working out His plan perfectly to bring the greatest glory to Himself ultimately through His Son. Do you want to be a part of it? It's going to take repentance and it's going to take waiting. We continue. What are they waiting for? Two reasons are now given again. He likes to give his reasons for things. Wait for me because, sorry, wait for me for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. How many have that in their Bibles? All right. Anybody have any other translation that says something very different? What's yours say, Brother Wayne? For the day when I rise up as a covenant witness to separate the sheep from the goats. Testify. To testify. Exactly. The NIV's got that. To testify. And I'm, I think, even though it's possible to seize the prey as right, I think the translator of the ESV was reading this as a negative, as a negative verse. You just wait till I rise up to seize the prey because I'm coming for you. But the same letters in the Hebrew text make up the word witness, testify. And I think God as the ultimate judge is here declaring, I'm going to show up and be 
witness. I've been watching everything, and I'm going to make my judgment when judgment day comes. You just wait till I render judgment. And somehow, these people who seek the Lord, seek humility and righteousness, who draw near to Him, they'll be pardoned. They're going to make it. They're going to live through the judgment. Micah 1 verse 2. You can just go back a couple books. Micah 1 verse 2. Here's what I'm talking about. Hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you. The Lord from His holy temple. Or Malachi 3 verse 5. I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and the adulterers, against those who swear false wit falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord. I will be a swift witness. I think what he's saying, so the, that's the word that we're talking about, same word in those passages. And I think what he's saying is, you just wait for the day when I rise up and give the verdict of the ages, when the rabble or rebel and the remnant will be separated. You just wait for that day. Keep waiting. Hold fast to it in hope. Seek the Lord and wait for Him. And then he gives his two reasons. Because the decision is still future. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. We've already heard that. Know that. Keep waiting. That is where we're headed. But that's not the only place we're headed because he gives immediately another four. You see how even though the ESV has the conversion of nations title and separates verse 9, it starts with that conjunction four. It's the same conjunction that in verse 8, for my decision is. So I see these two as two side-by-side reasons why they need to wait. And listen to the second one. This is glorious. Wait for me. Persevere in trusting me. Because not only is the judgment coming that I have determined, and it's not here yet, that's why you need to keep waiting. But also, this is what I've determined. I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. That all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. So let's consider this. Purify the lips. Think about Isaiah when he gets caught up into heaven. I live among a people of unclean lips. They're all about me. What he's hearing is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. But everyone around him hasn't noticed the glory. He lives on the earth and everyone around him is a people of unclean lips. But now he gets eyes to see the glory of God and it convicts him in the soul. That's what I pray happens when I'm teaching, when I'm preaching, that people would encounter glory. Because if they can see glory, it will change their lives. It will burn away dross. All sin will be seen as sin and it will be a horror to the soul when it encounters glory. 
to meet the living God as He truly is and to recognize this God has made a way for me to have a relationship with Him. Purified lips will come. But this language of purified lips sounds like something else way back there in Genesis. I will change the speech of the peoples. What does that sound like? Tower of Babel. So back there at the Tower of Babel, there was a great unity among all the people speaking the same language, and it was all against God. And so God brought dispersion. He dispersed them in judgment. And now God is saying, I think, Tower of Babel is going to be reversed. But notice how the reversal will happen. It doesn't say, so what does the reversal look like? It means that I will give everybody one language again. No, it defines it. Purified speech means, this is why they get pure speech, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord. That's the nature of the purification. So where have we heard about words so far in this book? Well, in Zephaniah 1.5, they're swearing by Milcom, but to Yahweh. So misdirected oaths, purified. How about all the boasting, the pride of the human heart? I am God and there is no other. Or complacency. God's not, He doesn't care whether good or bad. All of that self-exalting boasting, purified. How about fraud, violence, teaching of the law in a way that profanes what is holy? All of that deceptive or abusive instruction, purified. In order that all peoples might call on the name of the Lord. Now, you'll remember Joel chapter 2. Because he uses the same phrase and it's quoted by Peter in Acts chapter 2. But in Joel 2, in a day of the Lord context, this is what we read. I'm, going, I'm turning here to Joel 2.28. Hosea, Joel 2.28. And it shall come about that I will pour my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Young men shall see visions. Even on the male and the female servants in those days, I'll pour out my spirit. I'll show wonders in the heavens and on the earth. Blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the mood to blood, before the great and the awesome day of Yahweh comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, saved. And then Peter quotes it in Acts chapter 2. What does he say? He says, brothers, you're seeing this tongues thing? We're not drunk. This is what Joel talked about. This is fulfillment. And then his audience says, what do I do? What do I do? And he says, call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. And that Lord for him is the resurrected Jesus. He quotes Psalm 16 in order to say, this Jesus whom you killed... He's been raised from the dead, just as David anticipated. 
Call upon His name and you will be saved. And then, Paul in Romans chapter 10. Right after he's depicted the amazing sovereignty of God in hardening some and showing mercy on others. And we're boggled by trying to understand how how all of that works together. He says, but because we have a God this big, we can boldly enter into the mission field. Proclaiming, we need missionaries who will go and testify to the greatness of God. Because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's Zephaniah and it's Joel. He's bringing it together and here's here's why I'm going there. They see this as being fulfilled right now. Purified speech. So that people from all over the world will call upon the name of the Lord. Right in the context of Judgment Day. That's why I've pinned it on the death of Christ as the Judgment Day for us. Even as we anticipate the ultimate Judgment Day that's still to come and that will deal with most of the world, world's evil. But already in this moment, those who seek the Lord and those who wait upon the Lord have gained purified speech to call upon the name. You're tapping into the name that is above every name. The name that at the, at the declaring of it, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Jesus Christ is Lord. That name is being called upon in this text. And, and the rest of the Bible gives clarity to how to read it. But this text is being fulfilled right now. That all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. Now this service, I think, is probably a priestly service. All of us in the New Covenant are called priests. And the reason I think that is because if you look at the end of verse 10, the offerings are mentioned. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. So, before I get there, yeah, I'm, I'm here. I'm here now. This is where I want to be. The daughters of my dispersed ones, or scattered ones, some translations might have. The question is, who are the scattered ones and who are we talking about? Are these Gentiles or is it just the Jews? In Deuteronomy chapter 30, just talking to the people of Israel, this is what Moses said. At the very least, this is a fulfillment of this prophecy. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you, and He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has dispersed you, scattered you. Same word. So at the very least, we're talking about Judah. But I think it's more than that. Because back in Genesis chapter 11, at the Tower of Babel, purified speech, the exact same word is used, And this is what we read. Genesis chapter 11, verse 8. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city of Babylon. Therefore, its name was called Babel or Babylon, because there the Lord confused the languages of the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed or scattered them over the face of the earth. So, 
all of a sudden, this book is about the church. A church not made up of only Jewish remnant, but a church that is going to be made up of peoples from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. Now, here's a beautiful element. For eternity, in Romans 5 and Romans 7, we learn that those gathered around the throne are still speaking in their own multiple tongues, but all of them are declaring, holy, holy, holy. Why didn't God change the speech? Back to a unified speech. What we have is a unified testimony. But everybody's saying it in their own language. One of the reasons, I think, is so that forever we would have a reminder Even in hearing different tongues, it was because of sin. It was judgment. But God, in leaving the reminder for eternity of judgment by everyone having different tongues, He's overcome the judgment and allowed all the different speeches to be purified with one unified voice calling upon the name, trusting the name, praising the name. One voice together unified around the throne. Almost done, brothers. So, I do. I think it will be comparable to Pentecost, where the sounds were coming and everyone was able to hear testimony in their own native tongue, the praises and the glories of God that were being given. And so, it's the mention of Cush and the use of the purified speech, the changed speech that suggests to me we're not just dealing with Judah, we're dealing with something bigger, we're dealing with the nations. And I think that Zephaniah, son of Cush, he just goes to the Cushites. They're the only example. He says, from the, beyond the borders of Cush... Now, in the ancient world, we have no evidence of any people groups farther south than Cush. That was considered the extreme parts of the world. Now, picture this. Cush is mentioned in Genesis chapter 2. Where? The Garden of Eden. Out of the Garden of Eden flows four rivers. Rivers of life flowing from the very presence, tabernacling presence of God, where man enjoyed fellowship with God. And the waters flow out, and they go all the way down to the boundaries of Cush, it says in Genesis 2. And it's as if now these people who were scattered at the Tower of Babel are now following the river of life all the way back up to the Garden of Eden. Revelation 2.7, to him who overcomes, I will give him the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the very paradise of God. It's as if Jerusalem has been transformed. And now worshipers from among the peoples of the world are now coming and gathering as was prophesied in all the other books. Not just the Jews, but somehow, and this is a question we have to ask, through you, Israel, all the world will be blessed. Well, how has it come? How is it happening? Ultimately, I think it's through the representative Israelite that the world is blessed. And the New Testament specifies that Jesus is the offspring of Abraham through whom the world is blessed. 
So he comes, he's right here in the text, if we have eyes to see it. All the prophets proclaimed Christ. All of them. He's he's right there in the text. How is it that God can justly change the speech of peoples to move them to call upon His name without truthfully and honestly punishing sin? Hell exists because God is good. Because He's a good judge. He doesn't let people off. And that's why the mention of the sacrifice and the mention of drawing near to God, I think, are anticipations right there in the text that indeed He's picturing substitutionary sacrifice as the means of provision. And then the eyes go forward to say, well, how can God actually use the blood of a bull and a goat to forgive sin? When it's humans who have sinned. It's humans who have violated God. Humans who have... um, taken Him as holy and viewed Him as not holy. The means ultimately comes through the person of Christ. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. So now we come to texts like Romans 12.1. Brothers, in view of the mercies of God, let us what? Offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Or Hebrews 13, 15, and 16. Offer the sacrifice of praise. Do what is good. Care for others. For in these sacrifices, God is pleased. In Isaiah 66, verse 21 talking not of the Jews, but of the nations. It says they will gather to Jerusalem just like Israel would bring their offerings to Jerusalem. The nations that God has redeemed will gather to Jerusalem. And then it says, and some of them will become Levites in the house of God. How do you become a Levite if you weren't born in the tribe of Levi? All of a sudden you're adopted in. You become part of the family. And Peter, here's where we end for the night. Here's Peter's language. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 9, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You, church, are it. You have become the ultimate Israel of God in Jesus. The restoration is happening. Your speech has been pure. You're calling upon His name. And what's the result? That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. We still haven't seen explicitly the satisfaction element, but it's coming. That's where he goes next. He unpacks in the final verses of the book how satisfaction in life, in God, is the ultimate reward for those who seek and wait. But already we're getting a sense of it. You're alive. You're not dead. 
Judgment has happened. Judgment has fallen. And you're still here. And the beauty of it is that we're still here. And we're new people. And we're longing for the day when all of the present darkness would be removed. But the Spirit of the living God, the Spirit of Christ is in us, giving us hope. And so we call our people, seek the Lord, wait for the Lord, tireless trust, a patient pursuit. That's the summons. But the summons to seek and wait, we will now see in the next unit, is ultimately a summons to satisfaction. And I want to be satisfied. I want gain. And that's where he ends his book, and it's a beautiful ending. So that's where we're headed. Questions or comments before I pray? That is, um, that is a great question, and I don't have clear answers. That's part of the, uh, the mountainscape that's still in front of me that I can't quite put it all together. There's still actually a number of things about the future. You said, is it heaven, though? And I would offer that our future existence is not in heaven. Heaven is merely a temporary place to get us to the new earth. A tangible place where Jesus in his resurrected body, and I think he's not spirit, I think he has, he's still in his resurrected body, he will rule and reign forever. That we will see him and praise him. Um, and that, so Romans 8 says, this creation is longing for the day when the sons of God will be revealed. And in that day, it will be renewed. It will be renewed through fire. But this earth is somehow connected to the future, and yet then we get to the portrayals of what that new heavens and new earth will be, and all the world, um, it's bigger than Jerusalem. Jerusalem is like where the temple is, and then it expands, and it goes global um, but it holds all believers from all time. And King Jesus is right there, and we're praising Him. And how it's going to be, I'm not certain. There's depictions like Ezekiel 47 that say, the Dead Sea will all be fresh, and there will be fishermen all around it. That sounds really cool to me. Um, and the texts that talk about the future as great big banquets, where... Maybe that's just on our one day a week, right? Or the, the, the weekend, the weekend banquet. Um, I don't know. I'm thinking about our earlier talk. We even have one yeah. here, they shall graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid, right? Yeah, yeah. So just soaking it in. Um, it is how it's going to work out. You, you recently preached through Revelation. Do you, can you respond at all any more to that, Tom? That, that's so helpful. And it, when I picture the future, I mean, it, it, we're not given much. We're given a lot of portrayals of the greatness of it. But a lot of it relates to physical realities. Um, the lion laying down to the lamb, us being absolutely secure, um, in massive communion and celebration. Um, but then you get pictures of Bountiful fruitfulness and gardens and rivers and um, transformed seas and fishing. And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, if, if this creation is longing for that, then things like the boundary waters 
or enjoying the power of Lake Superior, or standing in awe over the vista of the Grand Canyon, may not be separated from our future reality. But what will be new and glorious is that we will do it perfectly so that every apple we bite into, every fish we catch, every moose we see, every sunrise or sunset, whatever that will look like where there is no sun, that that beauty will always be elevated one octave to the point of praise. That's where we will live all the time. And whether our eyes are fixed on Jesus, they will always be fixed on Jesus because we will see His glory everywhere and we will be delighting in Him, delighting in our relationships, delighting in our food. I mean, Jesus in His resurrected body, He's eating fish and chips. That sounds pretty good to me. And He's walking through doors. That sounds really cool. Um. I know that our hearts will be satisfied, but I don't get a sense that it'll be like, you know, the eternal church service. Because God gave us this world to get, a, to get prepared for the future. To delight in His world as a means for delighting in the ultimate Word. So... How it's all going to work out, I'm not sure, but it's supposed to heighten excitement. This is one way I've, t- I've talked about it in the past. Whatever you can think of that brings you the greatest joy, that's pure and not evil, the eternal state will be that maximized all the time. Where do you find your heart at deepest rest, at deepest joy, and it's pure? Yeah, my son, Jack. That's his picture. That's it. Yeah, that's right. What's heaven like? It's like a big snake hole. <laughs> and, and here I'll just throw this in, a big snake hole, where, where this beast has been conquered and there's no fear. No fear of the serpent. Um, I would add this. This is a little bit practical. Some of you have probably had people come up and say, Hey, pastor, is my dog going to be in heaven? That's a tough one, right? But I I say, if God thinks you need your dog in heaven for you to have ultimate joy, your dog will be there. (laughs) Hey guys, try this. Um, In my own exercise, I'm either jogging or I'm walking. And about a month ago, I was walking around. There's an eight-acre field right next to my house. And I was walking around it, and I just paused. And I went over to, so it's a native prairie land restoration, and the grass is now over my head. But I went down, and I just moved the grass aside, and I just looked at the ground for, I don't know, a minute. Seeing ants and bugs and roots that perhaps no one in all the world will ever see that. What I just saw, no one, in, no one else in all the world will see it. And it's happening by the quadrimillions, or whatever the word would be, out there in that field all day long, and the only one who's delighting in it is God. 
He's delighting in every little bug, every little blade of grass, and it's just singing his praises. He's, but he's the only one enjoying it. And somehow in eternity, we're going to have eyes to delight in those kind of beauties more often and not miss them. And the time will be there. It's amazing. Mike. Well, brothers, allow me to close in prayer and then we can continue this very God-honoring, sweet fellowship. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.